Podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. We have a an episode today that some of you have been looking forward to, and others feel, you probably feel like you've already seen it. And I'm going to explain that to you. Uh, for the few hundred of you who watched the podcast last night, I've done something that I don't normally do. In fact, I don't think I've ever done it. Maybe once in the last three years, I decided to re-record a podcast. And there's a few reasons for it, but the topic is on Tim Keller's view of the Trinity. We've been going through this book, Engaging with Keller. We're up to chapter three, which is on the Trinity and Tim Keller's view. And the purpose, of course, is for you, if you're a layman, if your pastor's advocated Tim Keller, you can at least have an educated conversation. You can identify the working issues. Uh, you can do so in a um, laser-focused, clarifying way and have just a very intelligent, uh, helpful conversation instead of a muddled one where... Uh, I think as often it happens, uh, someone calls, uh, who's against Keller can call Tim Keller a name. Someone who's for Tim Keller calls the people who are against him names and, uh, and things devolve from there. And you know, the goal of this podcast is to give you some, some real meat, something you can sink your teeth into, something you can point to and say, here's sources, here's what Tim Keller says about this. Here's what the Bible says. And here's how those two things don't line up. Here's how Tim Keller is acting in a heterodox fashion or teaching um, unorthodox views. And and this has been helpful. And I'm realizing more and more as we do this series, as I read comments that come in, how helpful this really is. This has an evergreen quality to it. And because of that, I've decided to re-record the podcast last night. I don't always listen to my podcast, but I did happen to listen to this one. And... I just thought it could be more clear. I mean, I could have left it up there, but I just thought th this is a very tricky subject, I think, for many evangelicals. It's a very, we're talking about the Trinity in general, is uh, has us in, in an abstract world in some ways because we're trying to make sense of something we don't see. It's unique. There, we don't see parallels in the physical world that we inhabit that I can point to and say, it's, the Trinity is just like uh, water in the various forms water takes, because then I would be committing a heresy. I would be committing, in that case, I guess that would be the heresy of modalism. And I wouldn't accurately represent the biblical teaching, which is that there is one Godhead or one essence, divine essence, and there are three persons. So one being three persons. And th there have been so many issues through the ages when cults arise uh, with aberrant teachings on the Trinity. That's usually one of the first things that a cult does. <laughs> not all the time, perhaps, but more often than not, I can think of three off the top of my head right now in my area who teach on the Trinity and they're, or at least they give you a view of the Trinity that is not orthodox in the least. And, and it's dangerous because at the very least, what you end up having at the end of the day is a different God that is being advocated uh, to worship. And a God, a false God can't save you. So I think this is a serious issue, and because of that serious, the, the serious nature of this and how confusing this can be for people, I wanted to just give a, a better I, shot, better episode. And the other thing is I wanted to give you information that I didn't include in yesterday's episode, information I was unaware of. There's an email sitting in my inbox from one of you, and I appreciate, uh, I haven't asked permission, so I won't name the person, but I appreciate the person who sent it to me, and I wish I would have read it before I did the podcast. And uh, in the providence of God, I didn't. And I read it after. And it has some inf information on it that blew me away and made me really realize, I think, what Tim Keller is doing here more than I did. 
And I'm going to start the podcast off with some of that information. So if you already are part of that 300 or so people who watched the podcast yesterday, then uh, you, you can watch the first 10 minutes of this or 15 minutes, and then uh, you could probably go on and do something else. But uh, if you're new to this, I would just encourage you, listen to the whole thing through. This is this is uh, boldly going as Star Trek says, where no man has gone before. That's probably not entirely true. I'm sure there's other people who have seen this uh, issue with Keller, other than uh, the author, uh, Bidwell, who is the uh, author we're going to be talking about today, who's critique Keller, Kevin Bidwell. But there's there's a connection that he doesn't even make, I don't think, in this chapter, that I want to also make, and that's going to be the, the first part of this video, uh, to Keller being part of a larger movement that I have not seen. I haven't been, I just... I don't know what it is. I, I, I'm not reading a lot of Christian self-help books, I guess. I'm not I'm not in that world as much. I'm If I read anything that's uh, Christian-related, it's usually a history or maybe a theology, uh, and it's old usually if it's a theology. I'm not reading, or it's woke stuff. It's, it's I'm reading a lot of stuff I disagree with, but it's woke, and so uh, I need to understand it. But there has been, apparently, in the last few decades, really, but most mostly the last 15 years, a movement within evangelicalism to advocate what I'm going to call, uh, at the very best, a less than helpful construction or understanding of the Trinity, and at the very worst, a heretical view of the Trinity. And I think this view collapses into a heretical view, and I think what Keller advocates collapses into a heretical view as well. And that's the concern I have. Uh, it, it's amazing to me that you have so many... Uh, theologians, Bible-believing pastors out there who advocate for Tim Keller, and maybe they've read his book on marriage, I don't know, but they look at something that they see that they like, and they're unaware of these major issues. And this is one, I'm going to just put myself in this category, I was unaware of his teaching on the Trinity. I just listened to my, my to an entire sermon that Tim Keller preached on the Trinity. I wanted to make sure that I really understood where he was coming from, to the best of my ability. And all I can say is, wow, just wow. How, how come the alarm bells aren't being being sounded on this? Well, they are now, and uh, and they have been for by some. But uh, I'm also going to join the chorus. Uh, the few people that have been sounding the alarm, I'm going to join them and sound the alarm on Keller's view of the Trinity. So in order to do this, though, we have to we have to start, I think, somewhere else, which I don't usually like doing. But in this case, I think we have to be aware that there is. Uh, Keller's part of something bigger than himself. And, and as is often the case, but it's something that, it's not like the social justice movement where you kind of know what that is. Keller's part, okay, Keller's part of this is something that mo many of us may not know. And I think we need to know. And it's called social Trinitarianism. I've, I had never heard the term, I don't think. Maybe I did in seminary and I just forgot. But I don't recall ever hearing this until yesterday. And it was after the podcast. So, I want to give this to you. I've been reading and listening to things this morning to try to understand this. And this is a Catholic theologian named Karen Kilby. And uh, and because the Trinity, uh, in both Catholic and Protestant circles, there's an understanding of the Trinity, an Orthodox understanding, uh, that would be something that Protestants would share in common with Roman Catholics. Uh I'm, I'm not endorsing, just so people know, I'm not endorsing Karen Kilby. I'm not endorsing Catholic theology. I'm just saying, here's someone who is defining what social Trinitarianism is 
because she's seeing it within her circle, which is Roman, the Roman Catholic Church, the same things happening there that's happening in Protestantism, just like with the social justice movement or a lot of other movements, ecumenicism, the same thing that's happening in our circles is happening in other even religious groups that are totally different, but it's, it's happening at the same time. And so uh, this idea is, according to uh, theologian Karen Kilby, and I'm just going to quote her, the chief strategy used to re revivify, so revive, the doctrine of the Trinity and establish its relevance has come to be the advocacy of a social understanding of the Trinity. Okay, so a lot of the books on the Trinity have this in, in the introduction or the first chapter, this understanding that, that the Trinity has been not long neglected, long forgotten. We need to uh, revive our understanding of it. And so that's what she's saying here. She says, the, the strategy used to employ, to, to revive, though, the Trinity is to advocate a social understanding. Now, I've noticed this in a lot of fields, history being one of the main ones, where people don't really write on diplomatic history as much. Uh, young undergraduates don't go into the historical field because they really want to understand uh, you know, something like the, you know, how farm aid or uh, the econo economic history, how, how uh, farmers benefited from certain policies in the 1930s. You know, they, they're not, they generally aren't looking at economics or, or diplo diplomacy or uh, many of the, I'm trying to think now, many of the other fields that are intrinsic to history. They generally are looking at social history. And this has been something in the last 50 years that has been such a transformation of the historical discipline. And it's happened in a lot of other places. What are the social implications is always the question. What are the social implications of this particular belief or this particular study or field? And that becomes the barometer we use to measure whether or not it's important. So the Trinity seems to be no exception here. And I shouldn't be surprised, but I was. <laughs> I was like, what in the world? There's an adv there's a view advocated now that's becoming popular that the Trinity has this social dimension, social for, for not just the Trinity itself, but for us as humans. And that social dimension is has become the, the important thing to know about the Trinity, the, the relevant, the useful, the applicable thing to take away from the concept of the Trinity. And this isn't something you're going to find in ancient writings on the subject. In fact, I'll show you that more as we go through it, but this this is somewhat innovative. This is somewhat new, even though they're, they're pulling from theologians of the, the 20th century and supposedly pulling from theologians uh, before that, of the 8th century. And But that, I think a lot of that is, uh, as you'll see as we go through it, grasping at straws. This is more of a 20th century phenomenon than anything else, and that shouldn't surprise us because in the 20th century, a lot of fields, a lot of disciplines, a lot of concepts started becoming only relevant insofar as they had a social utility. So I, I, I realize I'm being like John MacArthur here. I've read the one sentence and I'm giving a full exegete here, but here, let's uh, go to the second sentence of this definition. This line of thought has been gaining momentum, especially since the publication of Jürgen Moltmann's The Trinity and the Kingdom of God, and by now has achieved in many courts. And by the way, that was written in 1980, I believe, or released in 1980. So, so we're talking not long in the in 
theology that's not long and by now has achieved in many quarters dominance okay so from 1980 to 2020 or whenever this was written 2016 i think she's saying that this view uh, the social trinitarian view has achieved uh, ascendancy it's the dominant view now now that's amazing that's amazing is it now i think and she's aware this is happening in protestantism too now i think she's writing though more as a roman catholic so she's saying in the roman catholic church uh in in that particular maybe she's saying beyond that but at least in the roman catholic church this has become a dominant view and i thought wow this has become a dominant view and I've, i haven't even heard of it in many quarters, dominance, she says, it has become the new orthodoxy. Most basically, social theorists propose that Christians should not imagine God on the model of some individual person or thing, which is three sides, aspects, dimensions, or modes of being. God is instead to be thought of as a collective, a group, or a society, bound together by the mutual love, um, accord, and self-giving of its members. And I've said this before, you think about it though, in our day and age where everyone's moving around, families are breaking up, instability at home, no place of belonging, identity issues, I don't even know if I'm what gender I am, I don't know where I belong, uh, race baiters all over the place trying to get you to, um, depending on the gen your genetics, uh, value yourself in a certain way, think of yourself in certain ways, that shapes identity. There's so many different things today that are causes for insecurity in people. And people want a community. They want a place to belong. They want a place they can call their own, a place they identify with, uh, a group. Uh, they are looking for that kind of thing. Humans have always done this, but it's, it's at a fever pitch today. And so in this doctrine, you have a, an advantage in the minds of someone, I think, who uh, people who would want to try to make Christianity palatable and to meet that need that people have, that felt need. Uh, and Tim Keller is a master at doing this. And, and I pointed out how he does this with the doctrine of sin. He does this with the doctrine of hell to some extent. What, what he does is he downplays the characteristics or, or the attributes of God that are seen as negatives in our world today wrath, justice, uh, those are things people don't like. They, they want a God who's just all loving. And loving in their conception of loving, which at this point has become very watered down. And it, it is one and the same with acceptance, really. And because they want acceptance. So they, there's a, lot, a couple things working together here, but I, this is my construction on this or my understanding. You have a group of people that happens to be fairly large that are really searching for acceptance, for a place of belonging, and they they want inclusion. They want uh, they want to be part of something, but because they don't, they're not grounded in the tangible things that used to be the local community, church, uh, family, the things, that, even a local area that you've been at for decades and your family has a memory of, and the landmarks are kind of familiar to you. Those things are kind of gone now for many people, especially the suburban the suburban dweller who's moved around quite a bit for the job or whatever. And they don't like, there's obviously sin, loving your sin has is related to this and so forth. But I'm saying on a social level, I think, you know, they want, they just really want acceptance. They want a place to go that they, they know they walk in and, and it's, 
man, they're home. You know, they're accepted, they're loved. Uh, and I don't want to hear about any of that wrath stuff. I don't want to hear about how I'm not uh, approved of. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't approved of much by my parents either. And boy, I want to feel approved now. And Keller, I think, understands this. He understood this before even other people who live, uh, pastors who live in rural areas, perhaps, because he was in New York City and he was seeing the trend setting. He was seeing what was on the horizon. And he got out in front of it in some ways. And that's why I think his template is being copied, which is why we have to do this, which is why this book's so helpful, even though it was written in 2013, because this template is the world we live in now. Keller is the forerunner to what we live in. He tilled the soil that produced uh, what we, what's growing in evangelicalism at this point, and, uh, or what was formerly called evangelicalism. And so this is one of those doctrines. So sin, hell, let's downplay those attributes of God that don't make you feel accepted, that don't that that make you feel inadequate somehow. And let's with the doctrine of the Trinity, let's elevate a concept of God, love in this case, and make that so important and fundamental to what the Trinity is and what the the essence of God uh, himself that uh, people feel, I think, more secure, accepted. Uh, they like that God. They, they, so, so Keller is actually doing something I think that is dangerous. He is playing fast and loose here. He is, he is shaping, reforming an understanding of God himself to people. And you can see with all the different doctrines that we're going over here, you can see how he does it. Some attributes get downplayed, others get uplifted. And he does a contortion that brings him into either less than orthodox or heterodox teachings or just super unusual niche innovative teachings. And in this case, I think what we have honestly is what what uh, inevitably collapses into a heterodox teaching of some kind. So this is social Trinitarianism. Now, before I've given you kind of where I'm going with Keller, but before we get to his quotes and everything, I want to just show you, this is not unique to Keller. Steve McVeigh, and, th- and this is not exhaustive either. There's a number of other uh, people that we could point to, but Steve McVeigh, Beyond an Angry God, is a book he wrote. And if you look at this book, it's the same exact template that Tim Keller uses. Same exact template. There's a divine dance. Okay, There's, and you're going to find Tim, Tim Keller talks about the Trinity as a divine dance. This is part of the language that social Trinitarians use, apparently. And that... Uh, there's the dance has been going on since before creation, but now we can be part of the dance, this Trinitarian dance that's going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can be part of that. And part of the, the fall into sin ends up being losing the dance, that we're not part of this loving, fulfilling relationship that the Trinity has, and we can become part of that again uh, through Jesus. So you can see how this affects more than just the Trinity. This is very monumental. This is affecting our understanding of the fall into sin, the curse, and uh, and then redemption itself and what it means. And uh, you'll see, though, with Steve McVeigh and with a number of the others I'm going to show you, they get into heterodox territory real quick. And st- in fact, I'll read for you. This is from Steve McVeigh. Uh, he says, I'm going to start, let's see, um, He's quoting someone else, and this person says, I must practice the same principle of transferred believing, transferred to who each person really is, a created and loved human in the being of God, 
really therefore a form of God, a human um, expression of God gone wrong. So that's what we are. We're a form of God, we're a human expression gone wrong, that he may be made right, and God in his spirit of love is as busy working in him, disturbing his false beliefs as he so so what what they're saying is this is this is part of the the dance we've lost uh as you see earlier in the book but it's we were this form of god and and we still are we've just lost this human expression so this is what steve mcveigh says about this quote loving people that's what it's all about in this world so what it's all about is loving people mankind's inclusion in the finished work of Christ doesn't mean that everybody has received it or is experiencing the benefits of it now or will ex- necessarily experience the benefits of it when they die. The gospel message, however, is that we are all included in him and what he has done on our behalf. Accept it and be blessed. Reject it to your own peril. The work of God in Jesus through the Spirit is what it is. The gospel we proclaim isn't a message of what can be but is the good news of what already is in Jesus Christ. We don't bring a sales pitch to the unbelieving world. We are ambassadors for Christ, and we tell everyone God was in Christ reconciling you to himself. Is this the gospel, or is there something missing from this? And I think you can see there's something missing from this. And there's something missing from Tim Keller's sermon on the Trinity as well. It's, and see if you could find the words that aren't here. <laughs> in trying to explain the gospel message. Um, the gospel isn't a message of what can be, but is good news of what already, uh, what is already in Jesus Christ. Well, the only, I mean, without the context, if I only heard that quote, I might say, okay, maybe that this person's trying to say that Jesus has already accomplished this, uh, the payment for our sins. And so that, that, uh, redemption is is there if we there's here's the the contingency right if we repent and believe and, and god god must draw us to do that work but there's a context to this and and even that sentence i'm putting a very charitable reading on it the context is that we're included that we are we're we're good we're good enough we're we have a uh, a um uh, we're, we're a form of God, and yeah, there's something that's gone wrong in us, but what's really gone wrong is that we violated his law, that we've sinned, we've offended a holy God, uh, his, his attributes are holy, and he, justice must come down on us, and so Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, or is it that we just don't realize something? We're, we're just forgetting something. There's something we're not participating in we should be. There's another work that we failed to do. Yeah, it talks about the finished work of Christ. Sure. The problem, though, is that man in this construction lost something. The dance. The relationship. Mankind just needs to realize that Jesus has already done this. It's not an... It's, uh, it's not something that is already in Jesus Christ. Just not, it's rather, it's not something that uh, can be in Jesus Christ, contingent on repentance and faith. It's something that's already in Jesus Christ, and we need to realize that. So even when we evangelize, we can't bring a sales pitch to an unbelieving world. 
God's always been reconciling God's always been reconciling you to himself. You see how this softens the sin component that that problem that we have and it elevates this 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 acceptance, this love that's un, this this love that doesn't even require uh, us to stop sinning and repent to to um, turn the other direction, turn back to God, and reject our sin. Admitted it was wrong, and and turn from it. it. That's not a part of this equation. And you might say, John, you, you're just you know, they're just soft in their approach, but that's not necessarily heresy. And this is what I would say about that. This is one of the more mild, I think, examples. And Tim Keller is certainly one of the more mild examples of this social Trinitarian view. But it gets into dicey territory. And once you go down this path, this is what my contention is. I don't see how you, you leave the impression with people that there is kind of something good in them. There is something really that uh, is already, they just get to realize they're already redeemed in some way. They're already part of this, this dance. They just kind of, they, they misstep, they fell, they lost the dance. And now time to get back up and start dancing again. Instead of, you know, you've offended a holy God, violated his law on your way to hell. Of course, we know Tim Keller's view of hell. So all this, all this stuff works together to give you a different view. I think it collapses into a heterodox position, though. It, it collapses into a man-centered understanding. It collapses into uh, an understanding that attacks the character of God, really, that makes him out to be more or less the kind of example you might see in something like the shack. Speaking of the shack, C. Baxter Kruger, who wrote The Great Dance, or sorry, he wrote that, but he also wrote The Shack Revisited, there is more going on here than you ever dared to dream. And the author of The Shack wrote the foreword to his book on this, on The Shack. So you can't really have a, a more rousing endorsement of The Shack, which for those who don't know, is a heretical understanding of the Trinity. One I think Tim Keller would reject, I would think. I don't know if he's ever spoken about it. C. Baxter Kruger, though, endorses it. He also wrote a book called The Great Dance, The Christian Vision Revisited. How about that? He buys into this social Trinitarian view. He says this in his book on the shack revisited. The Spirit's passion is to bring his anointing of Jesus to full and personal and abiding expression in us as unique persons. And not only in us personally, but in our relationship with the Father and Jesus and on our relationships with one another and indeed with all creation. And so the whole cosmos is a living sacrament of the great dance of the triune God. That sounds so beautiful, doesn't it? Everything. The whole creation is just part of this great dance, this beautiful dance. And we, um, we're part of that. That's what makes us, we're special in that way. Um, it's our relationship with Jesus and with one another and with all of creation that is made better through participating in this divine dance. And the divine dance is the Trinity. And this it just strikes me as hitting right exactly where people who have been alienated from Christianity, traditional religion, as they might say, this is the need they want fulfilled. This is what they, I think, expect out of a religion that they would be more open to is 
yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty good. Hold all creations a dance and I'm, I'm part of it. And, uh, you know, th this is, this benefits my life. It'll benefit my relationships. It'll benefit everything else. And, and yeah, and here's the thing, the true gospel will benefit your relationship with others, won't it? Uh, when the Lord does a work in you, that will benefit your relationships. There's no doubt about that. It is a byproduct, though, of a work that God does. And that includes repenting and putting your trust in Christ. And you can't skip over this. You can't skip over that, that important necessary element that we've offended a holy God. We've broken his law. Uh, it's, it's not right to say that we, as even fallen human beings, because it doesn't seem to make the distinction here, are just part of this great dance or, or can be part of it. We just got to realize we've lost it or something. That's not going to save you. Daryl Johnson. Uh, I'm not going to go through all these for the sake of time, but another one you can look up. Experiencing the Trinity, Living in the Relationship of the Center of the Universe by Daryl Johnson. Same thing, same formula. Don't you want to live in the relationship at the center of the universe? Sure. Uh, I'll just read a little clip. And we, When we human beings foolishly turned away from the purpose of our existence to strike out on our own, God did not give up. The Father uh, so loved the world in the fullness of time that he sent his Son to deal with our foolishness and rebellion and sin at the cross. Now, that's, he said sin, good. But what's the, the root of this? We, the problem that humans have is they foolishly turned away from the purpose of our existence. The purpose of our existence. Now, did we foolishly turn away as from the purpose of our existence? When we sin, I suppose you could say that. <laughs> What's, what's really, though, going on? What's fundamentally happening? We broke the rules. We broke the law, knowingly, our conscience condemning us. We went against what God clearly said we weren't to do, and we offended a holy, righteous God. Turning away from our, the purpose of our existence. You know, for those who are uh, vessels of wrath, as Romans 9 says, they have a certain purpose for their existence. And uh, it's not to go to heaven and dwell with God in eternity. It's, they serve as an example of to uh, show forth the attributes of God, of wrath, of justice, and then of love for those who have broken his law but have uh, repented, put their trust in Christ, and are redeemed. So this is, I mean, you could even find, I think, people going into universalism, which sure enough, guess what? <laughs> A bunch of universalists like this as well. Um, we have examples of feminist theologians who like this divine dance view of the Trinity. We have um, one that I want to focus on here, Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan monk, who wrote a book literally called The Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation. And let's just say Bono from U2, and I think Eugene Peterson, if I'm not mistaken, Rob Bell, uh, guys who are heretics, love this book, really love this book. And here are some quotes from Richard Rohr, and, and ironically, I'll say this, the Gospel Coalition has a good article on this. I don't recommend the Gospel Coalition once uh, much, so uh, don't get used to it, but here's an example of where the Gospel Coalition got something right. They wrote a book, uh, they, they had a, a book review posted there uh, uh, on Richard Rohr's book, uh, which is, uh, that I just showed you, The Divine Dance, and I just, it, it was good. I mean, they're saying we got we can't, accept this. We have to separate from a guy like this. I thought, wow, Gospel Coalition. I mean, hey, I'm glad you'll fight on this. Now, the thing is, though, 
I think if uh, Tim Keller, who him and D.A. Carson founded the Gospel Coalition, I think if you look at their view, it's, it is different in, 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 in ways as, as far as the conclusions they draw are different, but the assumptions that they bring I don't think are that different. And I'll show you that in a minute. So here's what Richard Rohr says. The interweaving of the three always, and this is the three, the three persons of the Trinity, always produces a fourth on another level. So great. So you have three people uh, in, in Richard Gore's view, three, three persons in the Trinity, but there's also a fourth. So it's not a Trinity anymore, I guess. Sure, this may sound like heresy, especially to a contracted heart that wants to go it alone. <laughs> he even knows. Yeah, that, that does sound like heresy. And uh, it's because it is. But what he's trying to say is our participation in this divine dance is just of the utmost importance that we're the fourth all creation is the fourth it's the it, that the participation of creation in this divine dance ends up being the, the fourth being and that or, or the fourth uh, person i don't even know how you being person uh, at this point it's so esoteric it, it's new agey i don't even know what to say about it but it's not biblical Trinity was not a belief, but a very objective way of describing my own deep experience of transcendence and what I call here flow. Flow. Flow occurs like hundreds of times in this book. And flow, Tim Keller says, dance. Uh, it's it's this, uh, this beautiful tapestry that oscillates and, uh, and just continues on forever. And it's, it's the Trinity uh, dancing with, with themselves, the, the persons uh, in the being of the Trinity. But we somehow can become part of this. And that's how we, a generation that wants to experience transcendence, is attracted to this. But you know what I believe, he says. I think the spaces in between the members of the Trinity are unmistakably feminine. The forms of manifestation strike me as masculine. And the diffused, intuitive, mysterious, and wonderful unconscious in between, well, that's feminine. And that's where the essential power is, the space between the persons more than the persons individually. Now, this is, is, is rank heresy here. But listen to what he's saying, and I think this is the key to understanding Keller, too. Not, I'm not saying Keller got this from Richard Rohr. I, came, I, I had this observation independent of reading Richard Rohr, but when I saw the Richard Rohr quote, and realized he's also advocating the social Trinitarian view, I, I thought, wow, that is what all these guys have in common. We are in a generation that doesn't like masculine figures. Ma a masculine God is scary. Uh, we want a maternal, feminine, um, kind of uh, comforting, inclusive God in, in our generation. That's the world we live in, and uh, Westerners at least. And, and the people who are bucking against this, uh, who are converting to Islam or more aggressive forms of Christianity, are, uh, they're seeing that this, there's no substance to it. You know, it's not, there's, there's nothing for men in this, too. Men, men tend to be more, I think, along these lines. Uh, but the, the, the whole attraction to this, I believe, is in that quote I just read, that there's it's a way of keeping biblical orthodoxy in a sense or at least you give the impression you're keeping biblical orthodoxy because you're not saying god's a woman you're saying it's three three men masculine i guess pronouns that are applied it's masculine figures uh here uh, so the three persons are masculine but you can still say but the space in between them is feminine so 
come to God. And then, by the way, that's more powerful. That feminine, that, that, that loving, inclusive part, that, that's the dance. That's the poetic part. And, uh, we, you know, about wrath and, and justice stuff, that's, uh, we can kind of take our eyes off of that and put it on this particular understanding. So here's the spectrum. I just made this little uh, line, I guess, to <laughs> help illustrate the social Trinitarianism spectrum. Now, I don't know. You could put other people in this, but I, I don't have enough time, and I'm not um, probably familiar enough with all the different nuances here. I just know this. Richard Rohr is on one side, and Tim Keller is on the other. So you have Tim Keller, but they're both in the social Trinitarianism view. They both have this view. Uh, but Tim Keller's view is uh, basically love is essence. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But God's essence is the, the um, way that we understand the unifying factor in the Trinity, that it's God's his essence. His attributes are love and justice and, and all the other things that we, assume, we, we see of, uh, as in the Bible as describing you know, God's his activity, his nature, uh, or, or his um, uh, the characteristics he has. So God is um, has communicable attributes that we can emulate. So we're supposed to emulate Christ, right? Uh, there's also non-communicable attributes, things that God uniquely has that we can't. And love is one of these attributes that, I mean, God can do it in ways that we're not capable of, but we're, this is a, an attribute that would be communicable. We're supposed to love others, right? This is something we can copy Jesus' example in. And Tim Keller takes this attribute, and he makes that one and the same, with, or, or he makes that the unifying principle that uh, defines what the Trinity is. So instead of, you know, you have th three persons, one Godhead, one essence, the essence is is equivalent to love. Love and the essence become the same thing. So he takes an attribute and he elevates it to the point of it's now equivalent to the essence of God. That's what I see in what Tim Keller has going on. And I'll show you the quotes in a moment. Um, so love is essence. Well, Richard Rohr doesn't, he goes farther, way farther. Now, Tim Keller wouldn't go Richard Rohr goes, but Richard Rohr says, well, God's an activity, basically. God is an activity. It's not just that God is, uh, that love is this essence that is fundamental to to God, and, and we can elevate it to the level of uh, of His essence uh, of who God is at a root level. Uh, ontologically, Richard Rohr, Rohr will say that love, that activity, that the loving is God. Now you say, well, what's the difference between that and Tim Keller? Well, there is a difference. <laughs> Tim Keller's not going as far as Richard Rohr, but that's it. It's it's a matter of degrees, I think. Once you elevate the attribute, you, I mean, you could do this with wrath if you wanted, I suppose. You have God is wrath. And you see the different elements of the Trinity participating and con convicting and condemnation and judge judging and all. And, and, and I mean, you could make the same argument that Tim Keller's making that love is the Trinity. You could, you could say that you could put in holiness, you could put in wrath. Um, and, and of course, Scripture says God is love, but he's, there's also other attributes that God has. And so what Tim Keller does is arbitrarily choosing this one attribute to make this is the the activity that God engages in and it's fundamental to uh, the same it's his essence it's his who he is it's it's uh, the 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 very uh, being of God is love that can very easily collapse into well God's an activity I, and I don't see how you really escape it in the long run uh, 
Tim Keller says God is, well, Tim Keller's view, he doesn't say this, but in his view, God is presented as less masculine. Well, guess what? In Richard Rohr's view, God is also presented as less masculine. Now, Richard Rohr goes further. Richard Rohr talks about this feminine in between. Tim Keller doesn't talk about that. But by because Tim Keller emphasizes this love dimension so much and downplays these other attributes and other doctrines, his view can easily collapse into what Richard Rohr is saying here. Tim Keller basically says that man's great problem is losing the dance. We lost the dance. That's the fall. Where Richard Rohr says the Trinity is incomplete without man. Now, Tim Keller would never say that. He would never say the Trinity is incomplete without man. He wouldn't go that far to elevate man to that status. Uh, but the, when you say that the problem man has and that you even evangelistically present the great problem man has as being the losing a dance, this dance of love, and we just happened to, we stumbled and we're not a part of it anymore, then what conclusions can you easily draw from that? Well, uh, there's this, this dance going on and, and we're, we're just incomplete. Uh, and I, I think, and I don't know that this one necessarily has to collapse into Richard Rohr's view, but you could easily go into, you could, you could easily lead into Richard Rohr's view. It could be a gateway to Richard Rohr's view, which is that, well, before we lost the dance, that would have been a complete picture of what the dance was supposed to be in God's mind and in his intention, right? And so without us being part of it, wouldn't that mean that it's incomplete somehow? I mean, you could easily go into Richard Rohr's view here. So I think that the social Trinitarianism is the problem now. And that's what I was missing from the video yesterday. And someone like Tim Keller is just, he's so mild on the spectrum that it's kind of unnoticed. But if you realize that he's part of something bigger and his view could easily collapse into uh, these other views, then I think you realize the threat more. And that's what I wanted to explain. And so now let's get into Keller's actual uh, quotes and quotes from this book, Engaging with Keller. So uh, Kevin Bidwell says this, and he summarizes the reason for God, where his teaching on the Trinity, uh, where Keller says this, uh, or, or where he summarizes Keller's, Keller's uh, statements uh, and, and this is what Keller says. In the beginning, according to Keller, was the dance of creation. The fall was mankind apparently losing the dance, the fruit of which was becoming self-centered. Salvation supposedly becomes the way back of returning to the dance and getting out of the self-centeredness. The eschatological conclusion in the new heaven and new earth is summarized as the future of the dance. And this formula is, is seen throughout all these social Trinitarians, as far as I've seen so far. When it, whenever they use the dance imagery, that's they say the same thing Tim Keller's saying here. So it, it's big stuff. It's beyond even just the Trinity. It's the whole redemption story is, uh, creation even, is part of this. Now, what does the Nicene Creed say about the Trinity? Well, the Nicene Creed says, we believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe one holy Catholic, and it means universal, 
an apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, in this orthodox teaching, I'm not going to go through a lot of scripture just because of the time, but uh, this is uh, you know what godly men of the past have distilled from the scripture. You have an ordering. It's not a hierarchy. It's an ordering of, and we can think of orderings even uh, in the natural world. We have you know one, two, three, four, five. You have a sequence. There's an ordering without a hierarchy. And in this particular ordering, which is beyond what we can perhaps grasp completely in our world, uh, God the Father, um, well, or I should say Jesus, um, Jesus Christ proceeds from uh, God the Father in a way. It says, um, begotten of the Father before all worlds. So there's, so so I I will correct my language here, uh, begotten of the Father. And you see that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so there is an ordering in which uh, our, the story of redemption is carried out. And uh, the, the whole, really the whole story we see in Scripture, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit have different roles. Three persons with different roles, even in redemption, and yet co-equal uh, co-eternal, part of the same Godhead, same nature. So this is what the Trinity is. This is what we, we teach uh, biblically. Sound Christians. The Westminster Confession says, in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceedeth from the Father and the Son. And there you have the ordering again. Uh, the, the Father's not begotten nor proceeding, but the Son is eternally begotten, Holy Spirit eternally proceeding. So these are our realities that Scripture gives us that Tim Keller's analogy, and this is the analogy of the social Trinitarians who try to use this concept of the dance, miss. They don't have ordering in their particular description. That's big. That's important. And I listened to a whole (laughs) sermon that Tim Keller preached. I think it was from 2006, but they just re-released it recently on the Trinity. And let me tell you, it was not really about the Trinity. It was about, I think, the felt needs that people have and their lack of fulfillment and identity and their issues and how the doctrine of the Trinity, if we conceive of it in this divine dance way, will give them all those things that they're missing. It reconfigures, though. It, it emphasizes, I should say, uh, the, a different... It, it reconfigures the Trinity to emphasize an attribute of God that people find palatable. Here's Keller's description of the Trinity from Reason for God. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. That creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other too. So it is, the Bible tells us, each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntary circle, the others, uh, too, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this, perichoresis. Note the, the root of the word choreography within it. It means literally to dance or flow around. He also says this in King's Cross. According to the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit glorify one another. 
Jesus says in his prayer recorded in John's gospel, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Each person of the Trinity glorifies the other. It's a dance. So Keller buying into the same dance logic of the social Trinitarians. Now, the problem with Keller's view, according to the author, is that his evidence is lacking, it's false, it's fallacious, and it's incomplete. It's lacking because Keller references the baptism of Jesus, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, that whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it, and Christ's high priestly prayer. Uh, while the baptism of Jesus is indisputably teaches the Trinity, overall, these passages do not present the slightest hint of a dance. So, it's just saying that, you know, all these passages are using to back up your view of it's a dance. None of them say that. That's the problem. It's also just false because the early Greek fathers did not use perichoresis to explain the Trinity. It is believed that it was first used in the reference to the Trinity around the 8th century by John of Damascus. When it was used, it was used to preserve the teaching of the Nicene Creed to uphold the unity of one God and the distinction of three persons who have their being in each other without any coalescence. Keller quotes Robert Latham in a discussion on T.F. Torrance's concept of perichoresis for his argument. So he's quoting someone who's quoting someone else. Uh, yet Torrance explains that mutual movement, as they're differentiating qualities, instead of separating them, actually serve their oneness with each other. Bidwell, the author of this section on Keller, observes that one can immediately see how some sort of mutual movement is suggested in eternal begetting and eternal procession. So what he's saying is that in Keller's dance analogy, you don't have eternal begetting, you don't have eternal procession, the, the sun begetting, the, the spirit proceeding. You don't have that, uh, or the sun being begotten. What you have um, in uh, the explanation, though, that Tim Keller's trying to draw from to support this analogy that lacks those things is an admission that that's what they're talking about. So in other words, <laughs> to clarify further, uh, the people that Tim Keller's relying on as sources to help him bolster the argument that the Trinity is this divine dance themselves don't actually believe it's the kind of, it's not a divine dance that, that Tim Keller's making it out to be. It's, it's just not there. So you, you go and you look up the quotations uh, from the, the sources and you won't find what Keller's saying. And instead you actually find ideas that contradict Keller's, uh, his analogy. It's also fallacious, Keller's view, to assume that the supposed etymological connection, which is tenuous anyway, then equates to a theological truth, is an etymological fallacy, meaning that these words, that's etymology, the study of words, these words that Tim Keller is trying to use, that, hey, it's it's translated this word, this word today, the root choreography, and he's just playing fast and loose with the dictionary. This is not a fair representation of how this term uh, can be translated or thought of uh, today, uh, perichoresis. It's also incomplete. Keller decides to focus exclusively on love to the exclusion of other attributes. He more or less assumes that there is a divine dance and labels it the dance of love. And I pointed this out before. It's the dance of love, but why can't you have a dance of wrath, a, a dance of justice? You can't because, I'll tell you why, because Tim Keller wouldn't have people coming to his church if he preached a sermon like that. That's one of the reasons. But it's just also not what the Bible presents. Uh, there's You can't take one attribute and say that that is God's essence. And that's really, I think, one of the main issues with Keller's view. Uh, Keller also relies on C.S. Lewis and Alvin Plantinga and quotes them quite a bit. I noticed some of these other social Trinitarians do the same thing. Uh, the author, Bidwell, 
goes after these two guys basically and says that they're they were wrong and I, you don't even necessarily find keller's complete view in lewis uh, but uh it, it's interesting i'm gonna i think play for you if i'm not mistaken in a, a keller sermon i'm well maybe i won't i'll just read for you the lewis quote then the father son and the holy spirit glorify each other at the center of the universe self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the trinitarian life of god the persons within god exalt commune with and defer to one another when uh, early Greek Christians spoke of parakoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbors the, uh, the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture, acceptance, each person envelopes and encircles the others. And uh, so that may, actually that might have been uh, Alvin Plantinga. Uh, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing, nor even just one person, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama almost, if you will. And this is Lewis here. If you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurring up at the very center of reality. So I, what I find interesting in all this is that Lewis himself says, if you will not think me irreverent. He, he's even recognizing when I'm trying to appeal to this example in the physical world of a dance, I might be, you might think I'm irreverent here because <laughs> this is so beyond us. There's, there is a mysterious component to the Trinity and it's supposed to be that way. And Every time you try to come up with a parallel on this physical world, you're going to fall short. So there is a, there is an irreverence to it. Um, so even there, though, I mean, it, it's not it's not great. Again, we talked about Lewis last time that Keller relies on Lewis for his doctrine of hell, and you know, Lewis, you can't. Lewis has some interesting philosophical ideas. He has some interesting fantasy novels. There's some good stuff about Lewis, but you can't uh, get all of your theology from C.S. Lewis. And that's what Bidwell tries to make the case, that these guys, again, two 20th century guys too. Keller can't seem to get before the 20th century because these are innovative novel ideas in theology. Here are the implications of Keller's teaching on the Trinity. According to Bidwell, he says, the divine dance does not uphold the unity of the Godhead based on essence. God's essence is redefined as being love instead of the same substance. Thus, love replaces the substance as the premise for divine unity. And we've already talked about this. Uh, the divine dance movement portrayed the wrong kind of motion within the Trinity. And we've talked about this too, but I want you to hear Bidwell say it. He says, these movements do not portray the being of God as static, but that a, a one who is outward moving. Calvin states that the Father is the beginning and source and also the fountainhead and beginning of deity. And this is done to denote that simple unity of essence. These divine movements are not captured by voluntary circles or orbits, but the clear pattern of order is from the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, there's an ordering, as we talked about. And the Father, uh, and then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. The Father begots, begets the Son, the Son, uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and this is how they accomplish their purpose, as presented to us from the Scripture. In a divine dance, where you have these uh, beings, the, these self-contained beings acting in an autonomous fashion, voluntarily uh, deferring to one another, uh, you don't have that ordering. And that's what he's saying, is that this movement portrays the wrong kind of motion. It's not this circular motion where they're circling each other. It's actually an outward motion where they have, there's there's a purpose here. There's, there's intention. The divine dance does not promote a balanced presentation of the Trinity as found in the Nicene Creed. Keller's portrayal of the three persons is a pulsating dance of voluntary orbits where it is impossible to distinguish who is who among them. Any reference to a divine substance or anything that might distinguish one person from another. And so this lack of distinction is a big problem. 
and, and when you get rid of the ordering, which Tim Keller's dance idea, there's no ordering here, then you lose the distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're just, they could be three of the same, uh, same exact carbon copy persons, and they're not in, in the Trinity. One essence, but not carbon copy persons. Implications of Keller's teaching on the Trinity. Uh, three more. The divine dance undermines the divine order between the persons of the Godhead. The ordering of persons of the triune God can be distinguished upon the basis of their personal properties that distinguish the three persons. Whether Keller realizes it or not, his account of the divine being constitutes a denial of ordering within the Godhead. So uh, this is really not too different, I suppose, than the last two we read. Uh, he's still concerned about this lack of divine ordering within the Godhead. The divine dance has the danger of tritheism. One of Keller's primary sources, uh, Cornelius Plantinga, believes in social Trinitarianism. And this is where so it comes up in the book. But I wanted to give you more on social Trinitarianism because I see Keller as being part of this movement. Uh, anyway, uh, in the book, uh, engaging with Keller, Bidwell says, well, Cornelius Plantinga is a social Trinitarianist and Keller relies on him. And in that view, each divine person is thought of as a center of consciousness. And that can give you the danger of tritheism. And, uh, and that's because you know, these three persons can inevitably or can collapse into them being uh, like three beings. Because you have three beings instead of one being three persons. The divine dance undermines the authority structure that is directly related to redemption. Now, this is a big one. Keller states that the theologian Cornelius Plantinga develops this further, noting that the Bible says the Father, the Son, and the Spirit glorify one another. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. No person in the Trinity consists, uh, insists that the others revolve around him. Rather, each of them voluntarily circles and orbits around the others. So it's not just that there's lack of distinction and ordering, it's that actually the ordering in the Trinity that we see presented in Scripture is for the purpose of redemption. And, hmm, what does that do to redemption when you get rid of that ordering? The notion that the Trinitarian persons defer to one another is inadequate to handle the teaching that Christ is sent by the Father and that the Son as mediator obeys the Father. He does not defer to the Father. So think about it this way. I could um, I could defer to my wife if, I, if there's a decision that I'll just let her make, let's say. I say, well, I don't care about that. I'll defer to you. You have an opinion on it. And I'll just go with that. It's a lot different than me obeying my wife, right? If I was going to obey my wife, uh, which which is not language we even use in, uh, as Christians, you know. Uh, you, I mean, it doesn't have to be a wife or a husband, or it could be your, your coworkers or your boss or whoever, what human relationships you have, that you, you recognize the difference between deference and obedience. And the biblical language is obedience, not deference. But when uh, the language of deference is used instead of obedience, uh, then you miss out on the ordering. It becomes a, a passive thing that these, uh, these three um, members of the Trinity are then giving each other deference and, and they can, in, in the same way it, could, it, it is presented. Instead of actually Christ is obeying the Father, there's a unique relationship. The Father isn't obeying Christ. Christ is obeying the Father. When you start to go into deference, you uh, can then uh, create an understanding that doesn't actually exist in Scripture. Oh, they're just all giving themselves deference. 
If we were to join with Plantinga and say that each person encircles one another and defers to one another, in what sense could we affirm that Christ was specifically ordained by the Father? In what sense could we say that the Father gave him commandment to execute the office? I mean, you couldn't. Uh, Jesus was active in his role. 1 John 4, uh, 9 through 10 uh, and 14 says this, By this the love of God was manifested, that God has sent his only begotten Son, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be propitiation for our sins. We have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son. The Father has an active role in this, sending the Son. It's not a deference that he's giving to Christ. I mean, that's, that's just un- unbiblical. It's not, he's not deferring. He's sending. Christ isn't deferring. He's obeying. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance uh, and that the Father ha- hath given unto him. So again, active roles here. I want to play for you now in closing uh, some stuff from, the, from a Tim Keller sermon, if I may. I'll minimize myself here so you can see. This is uh, a sermon specifically on the Trinity. And then we're going to watch a dance uh, performance uh, from Tim Keller's Church Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And we're going to ask, as we look at this, whether this is a good analogy for the Trinity. But let's first start just with a few things. I want to start... Uh, let's see, around 19, if I can. Unless you're willing to put relationships first, you're out of touch with reality. You're going to come up empty. It's going to be ashes. You're going to be dashed on the rocks of reality. That's the implication, that this world was not created by an individual God. It's not, that's not the process of an impersonal God that's an illusion. It's not an accident of violent random forces, but it was made by a God who is a community of persons who know and love each other from all eternity. This world is a divine dance. My wife and Peter Kraft, <laughs> Peter Kraft, a Boston College philosopher, and my wife, Kathy Keller, have both said if they get a chance, and they probably won't, but if they get a chance and they can read something just as they're dying, they want to read the last pages of Paralandra. C.S. Lewis's second novel in his space trilogy in which Lewis describes the universe as a great dance. Because what do you think the solar system is? What do you think the stars wheeling around are? What do you think the world, the planets spinning around are? What, what, do, you think this, what do you think the sea is back and forth? See, what do you think this, the birds are whirling around? What do you think the seasons are? It's a dance. We're made in the image of God. And God is not just an individual, but he's a community. I want you to hear what you just, what, what, what te- there's so many things we could point out in this sermon that are problems, but what you just heard sounds like R- Richard Rohr, when, when he writes about the, this divine dance, it collapses into what sounds like some kind of a, a new age, pantheistic, Buddhist kind of idea. Uh, uh, all creation is part of this. Well, Tim Keller says stuff very similar, very similar. It's not as aggressive, not as not as radical, but he says it's all, all creation's a divine dance. It's everything we see, the stars, the, every, all, everything in the physical world is just a big divine dance, and that's what the Trinity is too. What are you supposed to draw from this? And we're supposed to be part of it. 
and we stopped. It's our problem. We stopped dancing, and we got to start dancing again. <laughs> that becomes man's great issue. That's what sin becomes. We're, we're just not dancing. Uh, <laughs> there's got to be a, a, a very firm separation between the creator and the creation. And that's what I'm not seeing in Keller. Is there, The door is being is opened right here to making a, a tighter connection than there ought to be between creator and creation. It's one of the dangers of this view. Man, there's so many other things. For the sake of time, I don't know if I should play them all. Let's uh, let's go to, to it's about 32 minutes in or so. I want you to listen to this and ask yourself, do you think this is the reason Tim Keller is presenting the Trinity this way? And you know that... You know, you know, you can look at Adam and Eve and say, what idiots? Why do they listen to Satan? And yet what, we, you still have Satan's lie in your own heart because we're, we're afraid to. We're afraid of trusting God like that. We're afraid of trusting anybody. We're stationary because Satan told us to be stationary. He says it works. It hasn't, of course. Because when our relationship with God unraveled after the Garden of Eden, all other relationships unravel. Relationships politically between nations, relationships socially between races and classes, relationships personally between friends and, and, and even family members are always blowing up. They're always blowing up. Why? Because we're all, we all want to be little centers. You know, a, a solar system in which every planet insists that everything revolve around them isn't a solar system. It's a solar cataclysm. And a world in which everyone says everything's got to revolve around me is a world in which the dance is impossible. But God did not leave us there. The Son of God was born into the world. The second Adam. And now think about this. God says to the first Adam, obey me about the tree. God says to the second Adam, obey me about the tree. Only this time the tree is a cross. God says to the first Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live. And he didn't. And God says to the second Adam, obey me about the tree and I'll crush you to powder. And he did. And I want you to consider this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, what was he getting out of it? Oh, you say he was getting worshipers, self-glorifying, you know, he's getting glorifying love from us, you know, later on we were going to pray. Uh, he's he's a, the Trinity. Let's remember the Trinity. He already had that. He already had glorifying love. What did he get out of us? What did he get from dying for us? What was the benefit? Nothing, which means at that point, he began to glorify us. He circled us. He orbited around us. Jesus Christ. Now, it's what he was doing from all eternity with the Father and the Son, but now he moves out to do it to us. And he honors us, and he centers on us, and he unconditionally loves us. He loves us not because he gets anything out of it, but just for who we are. If you see that, really, and if it becomes a beautiful thing to you, you have begun to enter the dance. Because, see, when Jesus died on the cross... Okay, so there's so much, there's a mixture of so much good truth with error in this, and that's what makes it so hard, I think, for some people. Some of the things Tim Keller just said, amen, right? That uh, there, there is... If you go to, I think, John 17, there is a sense in which uh, Jesus, uh, in fact, I want to read, I think I have it open here because I was looking at it earlier. Um, he says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. 
that they may be one just as we are one, talking about his uh, followers, Jesus's followers. And Tim Keller's trying to say that Jesus, he glorifies us, he centers on us, he does what he was doing with the Trinity to us. And it doesn't that make you feel good? I mean, yeah. Uh, that, I mean, this is the altar call moment. However, if you look in the context of John 17, this is a resi- this is residual, I believe. Uh, the the glory isn't, it's not that he's glorifying us in the same exact way that God glorifies Jesus. It's, it's that, in the whole context, it's that we will have unity. A, we'll have a communicable attribute that the Trinity possesses, unity in purpose. We will have that same unity as believers uh, with God and with each other. And there, so there are aspects of the Trinity that are examples to us. Jesus says so. Uh, or at least he prays to God that there that kind of unity would be there. The verse surrounding it, though, says, I do not ask, let's see, uh, verse 21, uh, I ask that they would be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then he says, the glory which you gave me, I've given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, and that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me when I am where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. Although the world does not know me, yet I have known you. So Jesus is saying, he's not, he's not giving them the exact same glory in every single sense of the word glory. That God gives to Jesus. Otherwise, he wouldn't be asking if we could come and see the glory in heaven that he has uh, with God. Uh, that's that's unique to him that we don't possess. Um, the context specifically is related to being one. It's to the unity. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. A, it's a, a residual kind of sharing. It's, it's a... Um, and we see this actually in the ministries of the apostles. Uh, the power, the ability to do miracles, uh, the uh, uh, the success of their mission, uh, all these things. I mean, Jesus even talks about uh, his apostles, his followers, having a greater ministry in ways. Well, in what way? Does, in what sense does that make sense? That Jesus had the greatest? Well, he's saying that the accomplishments, that they're going to, as generation and time continues, generations continue, uh, they're going to, to go further into reaching the world, fulfilling the Great Commission, and these kinds of things. If you don't read it in context, though, and you just insert it right here, where Tim Keller just inserts it, you are left with a different impression. You are left with the impression that Jesus is circling us and loving us and giving us glory in the same way he did. He does the Father and the Holy Spirit. That, it, it, And without even, he doesn't need our our glory, the reverence that we give, and so uh, because he has it in the Trinity, so the whole purpose is is centered on us. Wow, this is this is the altar call moment. This is the man centered gospel right here, and and he said the word sin, so you can't complain, right? I think the it's so brilliant in my mind. The, the more I look at Keller and how he navigates these things, it's so brilliant because he kind of leaves himself these safety checks where. He says that Jesus died to pay for our sins or something along those lines. And so that's you can hide behind that quite a bit. But then everything else he says, it, it's kind of like 
that's what he has to say to get to the real meat of it, what, what really lights him up and what he wants to emphasize, which is that we, we lost the dance and we got the dance back and uh, the dance is the, is the important thing. Don't you want to be part of this dance? And in this dance, you're going to be glorified by Jesus. You're going to, all that's the great stuff that the Trinity is giving to itself. All that stuff's going to be, you're going to be kind of part of that. So now you're part of the dance, which again, Richard Rohr is the one that says, oh, there's a fourth element to the dance. Tim Keller's not saying that, but you can see how easily it is to walk away from this sermon and think, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm part of it too. Yeah, the whole creation is, I guess. I, we're, that's part of the dance. And uh, it's not just the three uh, persons in the Trinity. There's there's another element here. There's, And uh, it, it's, it, it creates so many theological knots. I think maybe Tim Keller wants his audience just to not take it to these conclusions or to think too deeply into it, but to just relish the feeling that you have, because it's a nice feeling to think that Jesus is doing all this uh, for you, and uh, he's just he's just crazy about you in this way. And we're really down, turning the dial down way on the wrath and the sin and the judgment. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, you walk out with kind of a pretty good feeling. Uh, so I think that's all I wanted to play from Tim Keller. Uh, I forgot to show you this, but um, maybe I, I was going to show you this earlier. This isn't Tim Keller. This is another uh, website, though, that uh, teaches the same thing, this divine dance concept. And I don't have the reactions to Tim Keller's sermons, but this is the same message, pretty much, that the the gospel starts here. You know, the good news, uh, and we celebrate that God created out of love, not need. We celebrate that God created out of goodness, not loneliness. We celebrate that God created out of joy, not boredom. And we celebrate that we bear God's image. The next time you think about the gospel or share it with someone, put on your dancing shoes and consider the Trinity orbiting and self-donating loving relationship. The gospel starts with God, and so should we. And it goes through the Lewis quote, I believe. It's, uh, yeah, it's right here. It's the same argument that Tim Keller gives. Um, So, what are the reactions to this? And that this is what I found fascinating. The people who are reacting or commenting on this and saying what they think, that, here, here's what Sherry says. It should make me realize that I am good enough, that I am strong enough, and that I'm pretty enough, and that I am loved enough. But sadly, I still struggle with this. My self-worth should be higher, but I will continue to tell myself that I'm a child of God. I am worthy. I am made in his likeness. I am who he says I am. I am enough. Here's Sarah. When I think of how God made me in his image and out of love, Everything else melts away, and all my insecurities and self-doubt no matter, no longer matter because I realize how he is and how he beautifully he made me and all of man. When I think about how beautiful Niagara Falls is, I think that I'm even more beautiful in his eyes. I'm astounded and overwhelmed. One more, Sheila. It gives me a sense of calmness and validation knowing that God made me from love and goodness. God loves me for who as I am eternally. You can see why this is appealing. You can see why this is appealing. you're a child of the king i mean you're you're so important and loving and good and beautiful and it's it it's the man-centered stuff you say well it's not as man-centered as oprah and which of course not this it's being marketed to it's it's pulling in people from the outside world sure but it's also being marketed i think most especially in worth formerly orthodox circles and 
it's it's a new message for so people who grew up some sometimes maybe legitimately so they they have gripes about overly legalistic context they grew up in that could be very well the case that the love of God wasn't even focused on it was all wrath and justice and follow the rules and that's and and you might get God's love but you know and and so you have that you have and then just to the orthodox you know God is love and God loved the world and God is all God also is judging the world and so first John's three sixteen and 17 and you have that biblical balance there so people who grew up in either of those traditions uh, when they hear this, this this is a temptation, I think, for especially if they're unconverted and they grew up in those traditions, because now they're being told that you know, man, we're special. That uh, it's just it's so man centered, it's so appealing, and sounds so much better than what I grew up with, doesn't it? Because uh, I get to be good, <laughs> I get to be special, I get to. Um, now, of course, I think if you really understand, you're converted and you understand the true gospel that we were alienated from God because of our law-breaking, because we, we hated him, we hated his law, we wanted our sin, and that Jesus Christ came and paid the penalty that we could not, live the life we could not, and then made a way for us to be right with, be in right relationship with God through giving of himself, his death, burial, resurrection, conquering death and sin. I think that that, that is way better than what Tim Keller's Give, giving us, especially if you think deeply into what Tim Keller is giving us, which are these unspecified persons that don't don't work in this order that this beautiful order that we see in Scripture. That that beauty is what's cast asunder in Tim Keller's view. I think that you you you're trading in something that's very good for something that, if you really think about it long enough. It's not as good. It's it's not as beautiful, and it leaves out. I mean, look at this even first comment I just read. You know, uh, I am pretty enough. I am loved enough, but sadly, I still struggle with this. My self worth should be higher. Uh, I am worthy. I am made in His likeness. Well, guess what? Maybe your self worth shouldn't be higher. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what the actual true gospel can rectify here: is that you're really not worthy. You're really not strong enough, good enough, pretty enough. In fact, there's this ugly thing called sin, and Jesus is enough, not you. You're not enough. Jesus is enough. That's, I think once you actually, that clicks, that is much more beautiful. But Tim Keller is giving you uh, something that is more palatable, I think, if you want to hold on to I'm enough, which is the natural state of man. All right, let's look at this uh, video. I want to show you this. And I'll probably just uh, minimize myself here so you can see this. This is at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in 20, I think, 17. It's called Life Together. Now, I don't know if this is specifically supposed to be about the Trinity. Some people think seem to think it is. Either way, uh, I will say this about it. There's three guys. They're going to do ballet. This is, this is at Tim Keller's church. And if it's not about the Trinity, Tim Keller thinks that we should be taking our cues from the Trinity for how to do life together. So I, I can still see kind of a connection. Either way, though he does not specify what kind of dance is going on in this divine dance he, he talks about, this is probably the most, I don't know, highbrow, dignified type of dance you can think of. They're not breakdancing on the street. 
saying that's the Trinity. They're they're doing ballet in a concert hall or in a worship hall, whatever this is, at his church with classical music. And you tell me whether you think this is an accurate depiction, a, a good representation of what the Trinity is. Okay, I had it on mute. Sorry about that. So I can't take it anymore. Is this the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit right here? Is is that is this would this be a good analogy for what the Trinity is? When this made the rounds a few years ago, I remember people were criticizing it because it was they, they said it was too effeminate or the regulative principle wasn't employed. But there is only one thing I read that, of someone who said, "Hey, I think this seems like it might parallel Tim Keller's teaching on the Trinity," and. When I was reading through this, I, my mind went back to this. And I thought, oh, maybe it was. Now, I don't know. I don't know. But even if it wasn't, this is the analogy that Tim Keller wants to give us. And I would just submit to you, it, it's kind of offensive to think that, that that you can just make this an analogy for this. This is what God, what God is. This is God's essence. Is It's a dance like this. It's just like this ballet dance with people circling each other. And it's... It's three people in the sense, and, and we just got to get up and we got to join them in the dance. It's lacking, it's subpar, and it's not orthodox. And that's my two cents on this whole issue of Tim Keller and the Trinity. All right, well, I hope that was beneficial for you in some way. God bless. Uh, more coming. Bye now. America, we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.